KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a health resort 45 minutes from San Diego. Holiday retreat packages of three, four, or seven nights include fitness classes, hiking, mindfulness, and culinary adventures. RanchoLaPuerta.com From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans, told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Our guest today is best known around the country as a comedian, a singer-songwriter, and most recently, the host of the Webby award-winning podcast series, Muller, she wrote, Allison Gill. She's also a veteran of the U.S. Navy's nuclear program, during which a lot of darkness occurred. She'd later channel into inspiration for her art. I don't play those songs anymore because they wouldn't fly now. Whereas before, like the whole Me Too movement, it did. Incoming with Allison Gill will be right back in an NPR minute. This episode of Incoming is sponsored by Easy. Easy provides customized problem solving for any project, anytime. Whether it's building software and automation for your business, support writing your next book, or something as simple as making a dinner reservation. Learn more at SoEasy.com, spelled S-O-E-A-S-I-E dot com. Welcome back to Incoming, where we're speaking with singer, songwriter, comedian, and host of the Webby Award-winning podcast, Muller She Wrote, Allison Gill. Alice and I had a great conversation about comedy and our changing culture, the tightrope artists walk between being effective, speaking truth to power, and how that spoonful of sugar that humor provides to make the medicine go down can leave a sour taste in the mouth of the person serving it. But first, you're going to hear a story told by Allison on one of our live stages titled Coping Mechanisms. Here's Allison Gill. I ran out of college money. The college money my dad had willed me after only four semesters So in 1994, at the age of 20, I dropped out and moved to Los Angeles to be a musician and an actress. Thank you. I'd grown up on stage playing piano and guitar, singing, acting, dancing, so I thought I'd have a go at it for serious, since I couldn't finish school. In hindsight, I was killing it, you guys. I was acting in big films, playing in bars and coffee houses, hanging out at the Emmys, but I was too young and naive and impatient to recognize my success. So I felt like a failure, and I ended up joining the Navy, which had been romanticized in my family. My parents fell in love when my dad was in the military, so I thought I'd travel the world and find a man, or at least finish college and find a man. I was one of the first women accepted into the nuclear program. I went to boot camp with 84 other females, but when I got to nuke school, the balance shifted. There were four of us and 600 men. That's 150 dudes for every woman. I was literally and figuratively isolated from the start. My living quarters were on the opposite side of base in the old staff housing because the barracks didn't have female facilities. All the men had to take sensitivity training because of me. They even sent a dentist to give me my pap smear because there was no GYN on base. So when I was actually invited to a a barracks party, I jumped at the chance. Having just finished boot camp, my wardrobe was limited to the standard-issue dungarees, a super-sexy and now obsolete uniform consisting of a long-sleeve button-up denim shirt and high-waisted bell-bottom jeans. Thank you. I walked into a room full of men playing spades and dominoes and drinking games, and I made my way around the party until I found a group to settle in with. This was a group of people, incidentally, who had promised to literally take a bullet for me, so I didn't even think twice about the fact that I was the only woman in the room. This was my family. These were my brothers, my shipmates. I ended up talking to a cute guy, and I was having such a good time, I didn't notice the hour until we were the only two people left in the room. I would love to tell you what happened next, but I don't know. 
What I do remember is stumbling into the police station at four in the morning, wearing only a blanket and bleeding. I told the master at arms that I thought I'd been raped. And he led me to a cold room with a slick waxed floor and sat me down on one side of a metal desk under a single industrial pendant lamp. I was too young to know how cliche a scene that was. I sat there, terrified, 19, fresh out of boot camp, compliant, obedient, broken down, and without a sense of self. A blank slate with no esteem. And that's when the interrogation began. Why had I been at that party? What was I wearing? What was I drinking? Why was I drinking? Was I flirting? Did I have a boyfriend? Were we fighting? What happened in the police station that night was the real trauma, because I can recall every second of it. A second man then came in and briefed me on the consequences of filing a false rape report. He said I could be court-martialed, that I would lose the most prestigious school in the Navy, I would lose my rank and my rate, he said I would lose all my benefits, including my GI Bill, my $60,000 signing bonus, and I'd probably be dishonorably discharged. He even told me I would be charged with adultery because my rapist was married. And I'll never forget his parting words as he ushered me out of the police station wearing only a blanket. Why don't we chalk this up to what it really is, a series of bad decisions on your part? I was terrified. They'd convinced me it was my fault. I was ashamed, and I definitely didn't file a report. I fully believed it was a series of bad decisions on my part. That self-blame was so deep in me that years later, I would repeat the bullshit they fed me to my best friend after she had been raped. You shouldn't have flirted with them. You're smarter than that. You shouldn't have put yourself in that situation. Their words coming out of my mouth. And it is the biggest regret of my life. After the assault, I reached into my limited bag of coping tools, and the first thing that I found was booze. My relationship with liquor went from light and fun to utilitarian and medicinal before I was even old enough to legally drink. Drinking was the best way for me to keep up the charade of self-blame and ignore the truth. I found myself drinking with my classmates during any free time we had. We would drink every night after mandatory study hours and we would drink so much I could barely keep it down during the mandatory two-mile run every morning at 04.30. But so many other people were puking during the run that it seemed completely normal. I learned a lot about booze over the decade I used it as a survival tool, specifically that it's a super temporary solution that does more harm than good. I see, brains are amazing things in that they never stop working on your behalf, but you can only keep them quiet for so long. So when alcohol was no longer doing the job, I launched the More Sex Initiative. Using sex to cope employs the same mechanisms as an eating disorder. It's about regaining control over your body. So having all sorts of sex at my own discretion and on my own terms was how I achieved that. It was a preemptive strike, shock and awe, like my brain was initiating sex with people before they could rape us. I even traded sexual favors for the test questions ahead of time with one of the teachers. Boy, I sure showed him. Ironically, he was my heat transfer and fluid flow instructor. <laughs> but sex eventually became a chore, killing any kind of meaningful relationship during the subsequent 15 years. The loneliness compounded with the trauma worsened my depression, and it compounded the need for different adaptation strategies. That's when I began overachieving. And it's the only coping mechanism that I've never quit using. After the rape, I dove into my schoolwork. I studied until midnight every night of the week, and I raised my grades from a 2.8 to a 4.0. I graduated nuke school with a perfect score, despite drinking, depression, and crippling anxiety, armed with only booze, a stack of books, and the heat transfer and fluid flow test questions. <laughs> it would turn out, though, that even overachieving can backfire, 
because when I filed my claim for PTSD with the Department of Veterans Affairs, it was denied three times over five years. And not only because I had no proof, the VA said I couldn't have been raped because my grades got better. They reasoned that no one's grades get better after a traumatic event. After many years of failed attempts to cope using booze, sex, and achievements, I turned to yoga, which I won't talk about too much because people want to hear about yoga like they want to hear about CrossFit and being vegan. <laughs> but I'll say this, the word yoga is from the Sanskrit to join or to yoke. And knowing that traumatic events drive a wedge between the mind and the body, mitigating that duality with yoga is a very powerful way to heal yourself. I remember my first yoga classes feeling very uncomfortable during hip openers and heart openers and other vulnerable positions. I would break down sobbing sometimes because I was processing events instead of ignoring them, which led me to believe that yoga is the best non-medicinal treatment for PTS, and I'm still trying to get the VA to pay for it instead of the mountains of antipsychotics, SSRIs, MAOIs, benzodiazepines and antidepressants, often pushed with pain medications that could render me flatly affected, comatose, or even dead. I'll take yoga, thanks. Many years later, I would stumble upon my favorite coping mechanism, or rediscover it, rather, and almost completely by accident. See, I was a musician by trade before joining the Navy, a serious musician, a classically trained coffeehouse feminist, angry Lilith Fair minor chord musician. But one fateful night in 2004, I went to a Flaming Lips concert, and Liz Fair was opening. And if you know those bands, you know that's a weird combo. And when Liz Fair was on stage, most of the Flaming Lips fans were ignoring her, milling around, getting drinks, until she started singing a song called Hot White C The whole place stopped and turned to look at the stage like a needle had come off a record. You could see their furrowed brows and confused looks asking, is she singing about c And then the chorus came again, and yes, she was singing about c And I realized what I had to do. I had to write songs about c I had to, because that's what people were paying attention to. I started an imaginary band called The Crooked Bush. Our first album was called Giraffe Deep Throat. So many of my songs were about rape, and I didn't even know it. As a musician and a comic, I wasn't aware of why I wrote what I wrote until much later, if ever. And I recommend you creative types go back and revisit your old work. There's clues in there about who you are that you may have never realized. I don't play the songs anymore for several reasons. First of all, I've moved on. Comedy evolves. They serve their purpose. But most importantly, if ingested without irony, they definitely perpetuate the rape culture. I'll give you a small example. I went to the bar to meet my young man. He ordered me up a tall black and tan. Then after that one came two, three, and four. As I finished them off, he continued to pour. When I asked him why he kept filling my cup He said, I'm doing my best to get you liquored up When I asked him why, he said, here's what he thunk Girls are more fun to f when they're drunk We're more fun to f when we're drunk We're more fun to f when we're drunk Just give us some liquor and you'll bet us quicker Just give us some booze and we'll spread the good news Just give us some jack, we work best on our backs we're more fun to f Tell your brother, good luck. We're more fun to f when we're drunk. Hilarious. I was writing songs about rape that I could laugh at years before I realized I had ever even been raped. Maybe I was prepping myself for the big reveal with humor. So even though these songs are retired, my jokes are still largely about sex and drinking and rape because that's how comedy works. We take our trauma 
and we spin it into gold to make you laugh. We're like twisted alchemists. We laugh at our own sadness to vanquish it, getting it out of our heads and into the world, then repeating it over and over, kind of like exposure therapy. Laughter kept me alive during the years before I even knew what I was up against. And making other people laugh with reworked trauma is cathartic. In fact, a guy I was dating one time asked me if I wanted to try rape fantasies. I was like, no. And he goes, that's the spirit. Thank you. Allison Gill, thanks for joining us on Incoming. Thank you. <laughs> Can we talk about gallows humor and where uh, it came into your skill set? Yes. Um, well, tell me what. What is your definition of gallows humor? That's interesting. Um, my, I think it's my kind of humor that makes everybody else around me uncomfortable, except for other people who have been through extreme circumstances. Okay. Or as a way to deflect uh, the, the bad, bad, no good, very ugly feelings with laughter. Yeah. It's a way to minimize. Yeah. And um, that album I sent you over, the live recording, that was well before um, I had full knowledge and diagnosis of PTS. And it, unbeknownst to me, my brain was working at its own magic, right? It was, it was writing these songs, writing these stories, writing these poems. Pretty much unbeknownst to me, what they meant. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done that. You've you've painted something, written something, made a piece of music, and you look at it and you're like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, those little moments of creation where you're aware that you don't have awareness over 95% of your brain, but yeah. it's doing stuff. And so my brain, um, after the trauma, uh, its main job is to protect me. And I think in order to do that, it it made really, <laughs> I guess... Uh, you know, unconventional jokes um, that I thought everyone could relate to, and it turns out they could. And uh, to to basically, I don't know if it was to cover it up or to cope with it or both. AIMR is what this song is called, so we can uh, abbreviating things is fun. Aimer, alcohol induced made ritual. I would rather make people laugh than anything else. And 
And while I, you know, while I practice gallows humor, it's not so dark or so alt that, that people get, you know, I don't get ooh a lot. Um, it's more like, oh, and, and, and laughter that way. So did you find that the military in general, the, the men and women you served with had a relationship with humor that was different from civilians? Yeah, because we had a lot of acronyms. <laughs> no, uh, for reals though, the, the humor was all sex-based humor in the military. It is just entirely sexually based. I did just a bunch of sexually frustrated people, I think. I don't know. But it, it always seemed to revolve around phalluses. I can't figure out why. <laughs> they are empirically funny. <laughs> Missiles and bombs are all shaped. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's, and they are, they are inherently funny, but I, I, I can't figure it out. But everything, even down to the language that we would use in the BMRs in our maintenance um, review had sexual undertones to it. Just really what, like male and female parts and then how the cavitation of a pump causes pounding and knocking and, just, and everyone's in class, like Beavis and Butthead, laughing. Just, uh, and uh, it's just thick in the air. I don't know. It's just a culture. We'll be right back after this. KPBS On Demand is supported by Pacific Arts Movement's 2021 San Diego Asian Film Festival, October 28th through November 6th, showcasing over 130 films and honoring Asian and Asian American filmmakers. For tickets and information, go to sdaff.org. Welcome back to Incoming and our guest today, Navy veteran, comedian, and Webby Award-winning podcaster, Allison Gill. Can you talk about your relationship with the concept of feminism and how you interacted with it, intersected with it originally, and how it's evolved over your career? Oh goodness, yeah, um, yeah. The it's it's kind of hard to explain because a lot of people would see my old stuff as not feminist or anti-feminist or uh, perpetuating the rape culture, even uh, because it kind of celebrated it and laughed at it instead of condemning it and ridiculing it. Um, and I, I don't play those songs anymore because they wouldn't fly now. Where the, whereas before, like the whole Me Too movement, it did. Um, it did well. And now I don't think it would go over. And I've also evolved, too, to a different place where I recognize the necessity of that humor at the time for me and how others related to it. But to, truth be told, the irony was lost on a lot of people. And I felt that more and more. Kind of reminds me something Dave Chappelle said in an interview or was kind of said about him saying to his friends that he became concerned that people weren't laughing at his sketches and jokes the way he intended them as satire, but they were just laughing at the racists found something in that for them too, you know? Right. Like my song about girls being more fun to be with when they're inebriated is, I don't mean that, but people took it literally. And we're like, yeah, and you know, would try to buy me drinks. I'm like, that you missed the message a hundred percent, buddy. <laughs> like, my, you know, but there's nothing in the song. There's no sarcasm font in the song. You just have to know me, and and not everybody knows me. I'm a weird Catholic, though. I don't have any kids that I know of, right? <laughs> I was in the Navy. I can't have kids everywhere. I don't even know. <laughs> You're supposed to have, like, a grip of kids when you're Catholic, but whatever, I failed. Oh, it was on purpose. It was totally on purpose. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about swearing around them, so that's, that's probably the best part of that whole thing. But uh, I went to Catholic school over 12 years. Did you, Catholic school? Did they make you sign a virginity contract? No. no. <laughs> Why is that funny? Um, <laughs> mine was okay, though. Mine said I promised not to have vaginal sex. So I found, I found the two loopholes in your contract. Yeah. So I got some new Catholic traditions. My favorite tradition that I like to do is, you guys ever see those uh, at Christmas time? People put up those giant plastic nativity scenes. Hokey plastic nativity scenes. Like there's light bulbs up Jesus' butt. If you have one of those and the Jesus is still there, I'll take the Jesus. I'll steal the Jesus. 
And any, at any given time, you could like open my trunk, there'd be like 20 Jesuses in there. Or Jesi, I don't know what's the plural. We never had to work that out, right? In there, and they all have little post-it notes on them because I'd write the addresses from where I took them from because I'd bring them back on Easter. It's the right thing to do. Do you still feel any conflict today with this wedge of modern activism that I, I, I refer to it as terminally sincere, where even though I agree with everything they're saying, it's just such a bummer? I have a couple of songs, and I think over the entire career of the, the, the life of that music, I think two people got offended. Um, one was a young girl who called in the radio station and said that wasn't cool. And the other was a, a lady who was angry at her husband for singing along to the lyrics, and she, she gave him a punch on the shoulder and dragged him out <laughs> by the ear. So. Because you're still active in media and comedy and music and art, and our culture today kind of discourages comedy from the major issues that we are rightfully confronting and dealing with, but we're doing it now in an almost terminally sincere way. And I've never heard so many people say that's not funny. Right. There's the whole, you know, Samantha B issue calling Ivanka a feckless, mm. you know, C word. And, um, and then having to apologize for it. And I'm like, you shouldn't apologize. That was a funny joke. And she is. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and when I was growing up, I felt like censorship was aimed at us from the right political spectrum. And I'm still very much where my politics were back then, but I feel like the censorship is also now really coming down from my own mm -hmm. well, people, we, people I agree with. And I'm not saying, and I would never get on the whole political correctness bandwagon because we all know that that's just code for being a white nationalist unapologetically. <laughs> <laughs> well, we come from the age of explicit lyrics right. when they started labeling albums and, and that whole Tipper Gore thing, right. right? That was our censorship. And we were like, no, don't do it. And then you had to, then you saw the little black and white parental advisory explicit lyrics label coming out on your CDs and, and, and cassettes, I think as early as cassettes. But yeah, I've, I've run into a lot of people. I've been told uh, I've been kicked out of the feminist club uh, because I support sex work and because I, not that I'm, I'm not a sex worker, but there's nothing wrong with it. Um, or because uh, somebody got on me because I, I didn't say, I said it was pro-choice and not pro-abortion. I wasn't being feminist enough because I didn't love abortions, which is a, just an odd concept to me. It's not a party. And right, then, I'm pro-healthcare, <laughs> but I'm, I don't want to celebrate heart attacks. So, and then uh, also, you know, comedians used to do college tours all the time and we don't, so much anymore because of that um, PC culture. And I know that every generation says this. Um, and of course, it, you don't want to do the dog whistle for, for nationalism either and be like, oh, you PC culture, buh. But I do get, but you know, yeah, you do get beat up a lot. And it's, it takes people to, who know you to stand up and, for you and say, that's, you got the wrong idea. You know, and again, that's one of the main reasons I don't play any of these songs anymore. They, I would get, I would get thrown, things would be thrown at me. Um, even though I think it was the dean of creative writing at SDSU called me a modern feminist <laughs> when, uh, when they heard my album. It, I, I think you can go too far with it. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Like a chilling effect maybe on the arts or comedy in general. Right. And, and, and I, we saw it play out with or the Roseanne Barr and then the Samantha B. One of those was objectively right and one of those was objectively wrong. And I know that everyone says comedy and art are subjective. I disagree. But I mean, you know, what Roseanne did was use a an ancient, disgusting racist trope and what Samantha B did was tell a joke, which landed. The audience loved it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, and we shouldn't be apologizing for jokes. Especially when they kind of fall under that umbrella of First Amendment, free speech, uh, speaking to power, truth to power. So, All right. And with full knowledge, the comedy is not evergreen, like you say. Like maybe there's an element to your work and satire in general that it, it succeeds when it puts itself out of relevance, right? Yeah, probably. Another big part of your work is politics and all of the modern ways it gets expressed, including social media, gang fights, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. and playing. But <laughs> one thing I've noticed that you're um, that has really come to your, I'd say, aid is uh, being a veteran. It kind of like tweaks that thing where 
you know, the people on the political side that you tend to be sparring with have so wanted the military and veterans to be in their wheelhouse that it's almost kind of jarring to realize that not all vets are Mm -hmm. on that lawn chair with them. And a lot of them aren't actually. Um, and it, it is odd though. I've noticed a trend now the, the, the ones that are left, the hangers on that support this administration have now gone full. I call it full Nunberg, just out of their minds with, they don't care if I'm a veteran. I am a POS because I support refugees and asylum and um, health care for everyone and education and 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 they'll you know they they'll say something to the effect of well what what have you ever done for this country and I'll tell them and then they'll go oh well that's too bad that the that our great country would take a POS like you and and I'm just like well I was there well what where were you <laughs> so bone spurs I don't know what happened to you but um and and it still doesn't really make that to me. It doesn't make that much of a difference because I got a lot of imposter syndrome going on because I was in the Navy under Clinton. You know, we read books. That was our that was our thing. Uh, I was in the nuclear program, which was a tough program. But you know, I never we never went to the, anywhere. We were done with our two week war in the Gulf. And um, even though I got a National Defense Medal, I think every they handed those out to everybody. Um, upon arriving at boot camp you just had the one <laughs> it's kind of sad like just i'd rather not have any than <laughs> just like one little free one there but um I, I quickly went out and got expert pistol and expert rifle just so it wasn't alone it doesn't seem to change their minds anymore or it doesn't seem to be something that if you're a liberal it doesn't matter you're in the, you're in the bad category and i think that's it used to be it may make a difference, but I think that those folks have kind of fallen off the Trump train, if you will. So, but the ones that are left are uh, dead set, no matter what, you are uh, a bad person. I swear, like a sailor. Here's why, okay? Two reasons. First, I was a sailor. I was in the Navy. Anybody else? Yeah. Military? Woo! Sweet. Thank you. I don't know why I gave you the black power salute. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. That means thank you for your service, I think. Right? No, probably not. But yeah, I joined the Navy like 25 years ago, you guys. I was, I'm old. And, uh, <laughs> and it was so long ago that I was one of the first women in the nuclear engineering program. Like one of the first women ever. Thank you. Paving the way for all you ladies if you want to be nukes in the Navy. There, I just wrote a song for you. It's weird to be there with like, it's like three girls, uh, two of them are married, there's me, and there's like 600 dudes. Whoa. It was so weird. Like, they, they weren't ready for me. First of all, there was no OBGYN on the whole base. So I needed to get my birth control pills, and they're like, what? You know, and I'm like, I need to get a... I, I need to go see a, you know, GYN, and they're like, what? And so you know what they f did? They sent the dentist. <laughs> like, how'd they work that one out? Like, all right, well, she needs her vagina checked out. He's a mouth guy. <laughs> Send him in, put him in there. dentist did my paps, you guys. But now my vagina has braces, so it's fantastic. <laughs> What do you think's changed in the comedy scene between the time when you entered it and this new crop of young 20-year-olds cutting their teeth on stage? What's changed? Um, Especially for women. Yeah, the, the, the reservoir of material that I had uh, at my feet is probably smaller. The jokes have to be more thoughtful. Uh, and, and mine have had to evolve that way, too. It's not just like I still use all my old terrible jokes. <laughs> They've had to evolve as well. And there's certain phrases that have to drop out, and there's certain things that have to change and, and have to be modified. And I think it's just a more politically correct world to be in uh, as a comic. But it also poses kind of a good challenge. Uh, and I think it's good that people aren't just dropping in bombs on stage or, you know, whatever. But I think... What's good about it is, do you remember when Howard Stern, when he was on Clear Channel, before he got his own serious XM contract and he had to play 
within the rules. I thought he was much more clever and far funnier when he had to sort of deal with that. And I think it pushes the young comedians now to be more clever um, without the shock value of something that just might be offensive. Can you talk about your initial experience with the Veterans Administration as a veteran who was seeking services and how that influenced your decision to go work and reform them one day? Well, I had a really great experience with the VA um, when I first uh, got there, the Veterans Health Administration, the Veterans Benefits Administration. And I know everyone says it's one VA, but in order to get your health benefits, you got to go through the, the compensation and pension process, which is very backlogged and very difficult and bureaucratic and hard to navigate. You you can't do it by yourself. You have to get a VSO or a, a representative to help you. I had a guy here at the county, San Diego Services, help me with my claim, and it still took five years, almost five years, three rejections. But I was still getting care at the VA because you don't need to have, for certain, for military sexual trauma, you don't have to have a rating to get care at the VA. You just get it. Um, which is great, and, I, and they, they're now doing that for mental health, and they're doing it for uh, folks who have other than honorable discharges as well. That used to not be a thing. Um, but a lot of those 22 suicides a day come from uh, that batch, and so they're like, we got to help all the veterans, so good. But I, I didn't, the, the actual healthcare system, which is where I ended up working, I didn't, have, I didn't have a problem with. I liked very much. What I wanted to get into it for was to, I don't know, to get into... Enough of a position of power where I could help shape legislation. That was important to me because I just wanted to make sure the VA kept making the correct decisions. Um, like, for example, helping our transgender veterans or creating health programs for the LGBTQ plus community or, you know, whatever, you know, insert issue here. <laughs> and and, and they've, the VA has been out on, in front on all of it. So... I've been very been very pleased with that, and it's I'm 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 glad to be there to help um, work with other veterans who have MST and maybe uh, and PTS and, and and help work on legislation for that, particularly with the reporting system in the military. But that's not really from the VA side. But I I just really I got into it because Obama he community organized me. <laughs> <laughs> He, he he said, ask not what your country can do. And I said, yeah, man. And uh, so I, I applied. It took me six months um, to get a GS5 position with a master's degree. It's hard to get in, even as a veteran. And uh, I took the executive oath of office the same day he did. <laughs> well, now we're under the Trump administration. And one of the things that we've seen when he got around to appointing people to government agencies was uh, the heads of the agencies he appointed are kind of clearly bombs meant to make the organization dysfunctional or collapse it. The EPA chief, uh, Scott think, Pruitt. Uh, um, yeah, exactly. It completely hates the earth. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the secretary of education has nothing to do with education. It's just um, Eric Prince's sister. And one thing that's not unique to this administration that's kind of been floated in past conservative administrations is the concept that, why do we need the VA? Why not privatize everything? Mm -hmm. And if you were to encounter somebody who was kind of considering that line of thinking, what would you say to them? No, uh, that's a really bad idea. It's very, very expensive. Um, if you look at the Choice Program, which is our, our contracted um, purchased care, uh, in the community. So if a vet comes in and we don't have an appointment for 60 days because we're so backed up in, in a specific clinic that you need care in, we'll send you, go you know go to this doctor and we'll pay for it. But they can charge 115% of Medicare rates um, and we have to pay that bill. The taxpayer has to pay that bill. Whereas direct care is much cheaper. It's true for TRICARE as well. If you think of an active duty service member getting his or her care on the base on the military treatment facility, that is far less expensive than sending them out to a private doctor. I can promise you this, I'm not worried about it. Because every single veteran service organization, whether it's Veterans of Foreign Wars or the DAV, is very, very 100% against this, as are all veterans. I don't really know any veterans who are for the privatization of the VA. And you will rue the day that you go against that voting block. 
Can you talk to us about the process by how you became involved in the Invisible War? And for those who haven't seen it or heard about it, talk a little bit more about what it accomplished and what it was made to be. Sure. Um, I was uh, seeing my therapist who happened to be the head of military sexual trauma at the San Diego VA, Dr. Carolyn Alarge. She's not with uh, the VA anymore. I'm sad about that. But she was an amazing doctor. And she told me that they were making a movie about um, MST. I called them up and they go, oh my gosh, your story, we need it, come up and we're, we have one last round of filming, I just barely got it under the wire. And I went up and I, I filmed the story and I had never told anyone my story outside of my therapist. No one, not my family, not any friends, nothing. I mean, I had my jokes, but they weren't direct. They were indirect. It's a pretty big leap to go from telling your therapist to... Telling a movie. <laughs> Telling a movie, exactly. Did you have any trepidation about making that leap, or was that kind of like all or nothing? I, I did. I was really worried about my job, but I was also at the my wit's end, so I just did it. And um, what happened, what ended up happening was pretty amazing. It was, like, it was really cathartic uh, for me in that when I went to see the movie, and first of all, it's important to note that nobody would, would agree to do this movie, including myself, when I said, look, we're not we're not bashing the military, right? Because I'm not in for that. And she goes, that's funny you ask that. Every single person has wanted to make sure that we aren't doing that, and we aren't. We are not. So it's, it's really great in that way. Um, but when I went to see the movie, um, and keeping in mind that I had never told anybody, and I saw, I was, my part was sort of in this montage of a bunch of other women who were saying the exact same things that I was saying. The, the things that were said to me, the things you heard in my piece uh, about reporting and being in trouble and you know, being charged with adultery and all that. And I had never heard that before, and I felt way less crazy. That solidarity, right? Reality is an agreement of two. It was validation, especially with the VA telling me, we're not filing your claim, it didn't happen. And so from that point on, I was like, yes, okay, now I know. And that was kind of my group therapy. Uh, huge group but um <laughs> still sort of my group therapy was there any kind of resentment over the fact that it had to take a movie to move that mountain yeah that makes me really angry because i know there are thousands of women who weren't in a movie who are waiting for their claims to go through since i filed my claim though the, the claims process has been eased a bit um so they don't require uh, quite as much as they required for me uh, because they realized that it was traumatizing to do that <laughs> to people with mental health issues. <laughs> like, no, you, you, you're lying. Your story didn't happen and uh, have a nice day. Oh, by the way, we're the government. You know, it's tra it re-traumatizes you. And so the fact that I was able to get my claim through because I was in this film is wholly and totally unfair. So you've been using your powers for good ever since. Been trying. I've been trying. Well, on that note, if a woman, young woman, was considering joining the military today, what advice would you have for her? That's funny. Everybody asks me that, and I, I it changes on a daily basis. Um, How's today? But if I said not to, it wouldn't be because of the culture, the the potential rape culture that they face. It would be for other political reasons. <laughs> but I wouldn't join uh, this particular military right now uh, just because of all the potential problems we could be facing and now they're sending JAG lawyers to the border to work on immigration cases and you could be stuck down there for 179 days doing a job that KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego Repertory Theater presenting Mother Road a Grapes of Wrath for the 21st Century from acclaimed Latinx playwright Octavio Solis live on the Lyceum Theater stage shows running October 7th through October 31st tickets available at sdrep.org you should be paid twice as much to do that you've never done before or you could be sent to the Korean Peninsula uh, that sounds safe and fun so I would have advise it against that. But if it, if it weren't for that, I would say, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the camaraderie is incredible. I never regretted joining the military. I would never take it back and I would never do anything differently. I might not have gone to that party that night, but <laughs> if I, you know, um, sauce for the goose, but it, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, ever tell anyone not to join because of that. We'll be right back so you can hear more with Allison Gill right after this.
Welcome back to Incoming, where we're speaking today with a comedian and songwriter, Allison Gill. What do you think is something that civilians in general don't understand about the military that you would like to correct? Um, the tribal understanding that when you leave the military, you have lost your family, your tribe, and there's nothing like it in the civilian world. Even if you have a family, it's not the same. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest misunderstandings about why people end up committing crimes or harming others or becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol or turn out to be jerks. Um, I, th I think that's a big piece of it. And, and I, I would want people to understand that more, I think. That it exists. Yeah, that that's, that's a big part of the a problem. And I'm not, I'm not telling society to get tribal. I'm just saying, understand that that's how different it is. And it's also a, a big part of the, the trauma for military sexual trauma is because you're now betrayed by somebody who you is in your tribe. It's not just a stranger or a, a friend you're dating or even a boyfriend. It's somebody who's like your family. And when that betrayal, it's, it's, it's a different level. When you became involved in the comedy community, did that in any way kind of supplant or transition from tribe to tribe for you? Did that kind of put, did that hit that taste bud you were looking for? Probably. I never, I hadn't thought of that until you just said it, but yeah, there's definitely a, a, a community. Um, as there is a community, um, at KPBS or a community with the writers that we work with or the, but the comedy community and, and again, that whole humor, uh, thick with sexual undertones is there as well. So it kind of feels homey. <laughs> it's like nothing ever changed. <laughs> like I got to find a group of really disgusting minded people to hang out with. Where do I go? I comedy. Comedy is the key. Have you encountered a service member who was about to term out in a couple of weeks and you could give them one piece of advice? What do you think it would be? Go to the doctor, get everything on your medical record, get it. Anything that you've forgotten. Your tinnitus, your if your knee's been hurting, anything that's been bothering you, don't be like, ah, oh, that's only for people who need it. Anything that's ever happened to you in the military, if it's not documented in your record, it's not going into the VA, and it's not going to be covered. I mean, unless you've got some other massive disability, and you know, then you're covered for everything. But just document, 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 and take a tap class, not dancing, transition <laughs> resistance program, and and. Find out about your benefits. There's, and the problem with that is, is that there's millions of them. There, I, I learned about benefits. I've been out 25 years, and I learn about benefits every day that I didn't even know that we had. Go somewhere, find that booklet, do your homework, look at all the benefits that you that you get because you've earned them, and they're there for you. It's not like you're taking it from somewhere else. It's not a zero sum game. You're not. If you go and get this benefit, it doesn't mean that somebody else didn't. Some other veteran who's worse off than you didn't get it. At, there is, it's there for everyone. Every, there's enough for everybody. What do you think is at the root of that psychology that's so common among veterans and, and the, their resistance to seeking care because they somehow feel like they, somebody else had it worse? Everybody doesn't have someone who had it worse if you've been around long enough. Mm -hmm. And only 2% of us are combat vets anyway. Um, and it's, it's the old imposter syndrome and it's humility. I think anybody who, and, and of course... I don't want to do blanket statements. There's always exceptions. But people who sign up to defend the Constitution and defend their country are generally good people, humble people. And, and that imposter syndrome uh, is real, whether you're military or not. It happens in the regular world, too. Just always having to talk up and feeling like if anybody knew the real you, you would be out on your butt, you know. Um, and I think it's just going through boot camp and... Being in the military, there's just a certain level of, of uh, there's just like, I guess, an unwritten rule that it's just, you know, you got to look out for others. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an unspeakable thing. I just can't, can't put words to it. I mean, it's out of our pay grade, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just knows it. You know, there's a feeling. It's just describing it as, is very difficult. I guess it, it has a lot to do with the tribalism that exists. All right. So tell us where we can find your stuff. Oh, well, you can go to alisongill.com. I'm on Twitter at alisongill. I guess alisongill.com. All right. My buddy, Alison Gill, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you for having me. 
When we recorded that interview you just heard with Allison Gill, the jury was still out as to whether or not she was allowed, as an employee of the Veterans Administration and therefore the federal government, to even keep her job and also announce that she was in fact the host of the aforementioned Webby award-winning podcast, Mueller, she wrote, which chronicles the investigation of Robert Mueller and now the impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. Since then, in a turn of logic that could only have come from the federal government, it has been decided that while Alison Gill cannot publicly identify herself as the host of Mueller, she wrote, other people, myself included, are able to mention it all we want without there being consequences. So, go figure. I say that to explain why, during our interview, I did not bring up her role as host of the podcasting conversation, but that's okay because you can go hear her show yourself at MullerSheWrote.com. Listening to my conversation with Allison again just now, I'm struck how even in just the relatively short amount of time that's passed between recording and airing this episode, how much my own opinions on the changing nature of comedy in our culture have shifted. Maybe it's because I feel like every time I turn on Netflix, there's a new stand-up special by a male comedian titled something like Triggered that contains a rant about how people are too PC these days because people got mad at him when he said something super offensive about gay or trans or Chinese or black people or fill in the blank. And I'll always fight for the right to say those things and free speech writ large, but to be honest, they're just not that funny anymore, or interesting, or even controversial. They all just come off sounding like the angry, out-of-touch uncle you only see once a year at holiday gatherings. But when marginalized people, whether queer or belonging to racial or religious or cultural minorities, and I would include veterans in that statement, satirize the very stereotypes and injustices that are aimed at them, It feels fresh, and transgressive, and revolutionary. I think about how it would come off if a civilian made fun of a veteran with PTSD, but my marine friends do it to each other all the time, out of love, because it helps them cope. We'll be exploring more about the role of comedy in the military on our next episode, where we talk with Paul Zoldra, creator of Duffelblog, the online satirical news site often referred to as the onion of military culture, beloved by veterans and active duty service members alike, including even General James Mattis. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give that a listen when it drops. That's our show today. Allison's performance of her story about coping mechanisms was recorded live by So Say We All at Border X Brewing in the heart of San Diego's Barrio Logan as part of the La Jolla Playhouse's Without Walls Festival. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Pepperpot Corley is our editor and sound designer. At KPBS, Kurt Conan is our audio engineer. Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator. Lisa Morris at Zap is operations manager. And John Decker is program director. Support for Incoming comes from the KPBS Explorer program, the California Arts Council's Veterans Initiative in the Arts, and supporting members of So Say We All. Learn more about us at our website at sosayweallonline.com. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and we'd love it if you drop us a line via email to share your thoughts and stories with us at info at sosayweallonline.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Republic Services, providing recycling and waste solutions in San Diego for decades. Californians will soon be required to recycle organic waste. Republic Services will divert those organics away from landfills back into the community for composting use. Learn more at republicservices.com slash San Diego County CA.